0: The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church visit gracefam.church One of the perspectives that we're seeking to embrace as we build our culture as a local church is that Sunday is the best day of the week. Every day of course is a gift from God. But this is the day each week when we get to gather as God's redeemed people, to sing of his love for us, to listen as God speaks his word to us again. May God give us hearts to treasure this weekly opportunity to be among God's people and in God's presence. If Sunday is the best day of the week, then this Easter Sunday is the Sunday of Sundays. God's new creation broke in on the old when Christ walked out of his tomb, gloriously alive again on Resurrection Sunday morning. The cross of Christ is most assuredly the center of the Christian faith, but Jesus' death is good news only because he did not stay dead. Good Friday is truly good because it was followed by Resurrection Sunday. Did you know, though, that the Bible doesn't just tell us the story of the resurrection after the fact? but it sings about it before the fact. The particular song I want to focus your attention on is Psalm 16. So please turn or navigate there. One of the gifts we're given in this song is a fantastic and fresh vantage point from which to consider the significance of Jesus rising from the dead. But Psalm 16 helps us in other ways also. You see, the resurrection is not just a topic that we dust off each Easter and then return to the shelf as we get on with the pressing matters of life. This song helps us to see how the fact and the hope of the resurrection is meant to permeate our everyday lives as God's people. So let's read Psalm 16, depending on God's spirit to give us eyes to see and understanding to grasp the blessings here in his word. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. <laughs> That's my song. I, I'm sure you've heard somebody say that in some sort of setting. Maybe when a song comes on the radio or you're, you're walking through the supermarket and somebody's like, mm, yeah, I'm going to that. And we know what they mean. They're not saying that they are the artist that you're listening to. What they mean is that they love the song and so identify with it that, that the song becomes for them Personal. One such song for many Jamaicans and many people around the world is I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. To this day when that song starts playing, man, I mean, eyes closed, hands go to hearts, and people get this pained look on their face like, oh. And it really is a brilliant recording that showcased the subtlety and the power of Whitney's magnificent voice. It helped that Whitney released the song on the soundtrack for The Bodyguard, a film that she also starred in alongside Kevin Costner, who was a big star at the time, in 1992. Though the film was generally considered to be quite bad, it did very well. And the soundtrack is, to date, the best-selling of all time. But did you know that I Will Always Love You was not Whitney's song? She wasn't a part of writing it, and it wasn't even written for her. Often R&B artists have writing teams that write specifically for them, but this was not the case with this song. It was originally written and recorded in 1973 by country artist Dolly Parton. Please tell me that you've at least heard of Dolly Parton. Uh, Okay, good, good, because I know I'm getting old and my illustrations start to be like, yeah, you remember back in the day when, you know, so at least it's not that bad. So, Dolly released the song in 1974, also to great success, albeit on the country music charts. She was a vastly successful singer in her own right, but when you compare the versions, it's pretty clear to most people that Whitney owned that song in a way that makes you think that it was always and ultimately meant to be sung by her. The best version, the most memorable and meaningful version of a song, is not always the one by the original songwriter. That's the case also with Psalm 16. This song was originally written by Israel's great king, David. We want to hear him sing it today, as it were, by considering its meaning in in the original context. But the New Testament helps us to see that Psalm 16 is ultimately Jesus' song. The truth soar on his unmatched voice as he embodies this psalm, belting it out like no one else ever could. Our joy would be incomplete, however, if we didn't do what most enthusiastic and unselfconscious fans do, join in. I have a neighbor, uh, we we recently moved, and one of my neighbors sings at the top of her voice as she's doing her her errands. Thankfully, she sings quite well, because I was thinking to myself, boy, this would not be pleasant if she wasn't a good singer. You see, in, in writing this psalm, David's intention was for other worshipers to make it their own. He wanted us to love it, to identify with it, to make it personal, to say, that's my song. Even if we can't reach off the notes, and we sound pretty horrible singing it, we must wrestle with both the invitation to join in and the difficulty involved in doing so. This is a very, very hard song to sing with authenticity, but you'll find that Jesus' version, though impossible for us to reproduce, helps us to sing along. So that's how we'll proceed. We'll listen first to David's version, then to Jesus' version, with some karaoke moments along the way where we attempt to sing it ourselves. So, let's listen then to David's version. As we dive in, I want to acknowledge the difficulty of engaging with this text, for some more than for others. I have a number of friends who have admitted to me quite candidly that they do not like poetry. Even when you enjoy it, poetry can be a bit like a pomegranate. You can't just bite into it. It requires patient work to open it up and get to the sweetness. So it takes humility to seek to benefit from a genre of writing that you struggle to access and don't necessarily find meaningful. I've shared this encouragement from the writer Christopher Ash before, but it bears repeating. God has chosen to give much of his revelation to us in poetry. And we need to learn not only to read it, but to feel it. That's what I invite you to do today, encouraged by the fact that we have the help of God's Holy Spirit who breathed out this psalm through the mind and experiences of David, its human author. Now, we're given no specific setting for this song, but we know from it that David was in life-threatening danger. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, that kind of prayer should be familiar, at least the first part of it. If there's one thing that's generally true about Jamaicans, it's that we cry out to God in crisis. When the bus swerves and threatens to get out of control, when fishermen are lost at sea, when doctors can't diagnose, when crime rages out of control, we pray. Even in the post-Christian Western world, when there's trouble, you'll hear national leaders say our thoughts and our prayers are with whomever is experiencing difficulty. Sure, we pray. We pray. But the hollowness of our prayers is captured well in another song, one that I hear played from time to time on RGR. I'm still alive, but I'm barely breathing, just praying to a God that I don't believe in. Some people at this point would put their hand up and say, yeah, that's that's me. But others, myself included, would push back and argue that we do believe in God, perhaps even able to offer a robust intellectual or experiential defense of the reality of God but we'd be missing the point. You see, you can truly believe in God, yet not be able to honestly say half the things that David says in this psalm. It's the second part of David's opening appeal that reveals the character of his prayer. For in you I take refuge. When trouble comes, you can attempt to take refuge in a shelter that is unfamiliar, or you can take refuge in your own home, the place where you live. The picture in this psalm is not God as David's designated hurricane shelter. It's God as David's home. We don't have to leave verse 1 to see this. David says to Yahweh, the God of the covenant, you are my Lord. God is not his break glass in case of emergency. He's in an ongoing relationship with God where God is the source, the sum and the substance of the good in his life. As far as David is concerned, there is no need to seek anything beyond God. As his song unfolds, we're given more details about the nature of this relationship. In verse 3, and follow me in your Bibles as I go, I'll just be kind of pointing to sections. So look at verse 3 again. We see how David's loyalty to God extends also to God's people. He delights in the saints of the land, those who delight in God and walk in His ways. If you shift that out of David's time and context into ours, you get the local church. God's people living in God's place. There's no reason to think that David is looking at the congregation of God's people with rose-colored glasses. God's people in any age have always been a messy bunch. So how do we delight in the local church when it is so imperfect? We follow the example given by the Apostle Paul which is given over and over in the New Testament as he wrote to churches with all kinds of shortcomings and sin issues. You ask God to help you to see what he is doing among his people and you thank him for that and then you celebrate that with others. David's allegiance to God expressed in verse 4 means that he repudiates and refuses to participate in idolatry. He understands where that particular path leads. The commentator Alan P. Ross expounds on the thought helpfully. There was a high cost for being involved in idol worship, far beyond offerings and sacrifices. Those who defected exchanged the true God for false gods at the cost of their own spiritual and physical well-being. For they relinquished the grace and goodness of the one true God. It's often hard for us as modern Westerners to connect with the idea of idolatry. We think of others perhaps, you know, maybe Hindus on the other side of the world who have these little figurines in their homes. But think about the high cost of idol worship as I read these words from Colossians 3.5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, meaning lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are among the things which rival God as a source, sum, and substance of good in our lives. The relationship David is describing, the relationship that this psalm is calling us to, is one in which we flee idolatry. Look now at verses 5 and 6. The metaphors used there are not modern, but in David's context, they would have been very accessible to his fellow worshippers. When God brought his people Israel into the land that he promised to give them, Every tribe, and within every tribe, every family received an allocation of land. It was, of course, an agricultural economy. So, much like it was for the people who lived in Caymanus' estate not so many years ago, and still for some who live in this area, your land was your personal possession and your livelihood. Every tribe received land except one, the Levites. This is what God said to them, speaking to Aaron, their patriarch, in Numbers 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. David is identifying himself with the priests. But he was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. You see, while David was living as a fugitive from Saul, Israel's king before him, David had been disenfranchised. He had experienced displacement and loss. I think the Bible scholar Derek Kidner captures well what David must have seen. That disinheritance can even be an honor and a pointer to the only real security. The real inheritance for God's people is not the stuff he gives them. It's not the material possessions that he gives us or other blessings. As we sit and listen to David's song, this is a question that comes to mind. How do you process loss as a believer? Yes, so that's the question. How do you process loss as a believer? You see, there's certainly a place for disappointment and grieving, yet we need to remember that loss is like a heart test. It's diagnostic. It shows us what our hearts beat for. When other things become our portion and our cup, when they are in the place that only God should take, when they become our source of provision or most precious possessions or hope for the future, threats to them or the loss of them can shake us to the core. The loss of a job or opportunity, a setback in your career, failing at what you see as your future, the end of a treasured relationship, an argument with your child or spouse, loss can be a pointer to the only real security. David understood that whatever he had lost, God had given him himself. And he was satisfied with God, delighted with having God. So he rejoices. Verse 6 is a confession of faith in the midst of a life of mixed circumstances. The lines, that is, the measuring lines that determined his inheritance, determined the borders of his inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament captures in a different way what it means to have God as your home, as your inheritance, as your cup. This is Philippians 411 b to 13. For I have learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every and in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What do you hear when David is singing this psalm? Notice that his voice is not wavering. He sings with joyful confidence, even though he's in a crisis. At the heart of this psalm is satisfaction and security in God. That's what makes this song spellbinding when we really begin to hear it, even as modern readers. You see, for us as modern people, the more we know about the world, the more we know of all the things we have to fear, the less secure we feel. We have greater opportunities and many more distractions and generations before us, yet satisfaction is more elusive than ever, isn't it? And God can feel so far away, so inaccessible. How can anyone be so confident in their relationship with God and therefore in their everyday life? How can they be so sure, so secure, so satisfied? We, modern people, are experienced at performing confidence. We can say it and tweet it. We can post pictures where we look happy and self-assured, ready to take on the world. Yet in quiet moments, by ourselves, in the darkness of our rooms at night, when you can't hold back the flood of questions and doubts, the whisperings of our hearts betray our carefully curated timelines. But that's not David's experience. In verse 7, he praises the Lord who counsels him. He's, he, he's given his attention to God's word in such a way that his heart instructs him in, the, in those middle of the night moments. Continuing to ruminate on God's wisdom. In verse 8, the request of verse 1 is reversed in a confident confession of faith. David began this song by crying out for God's protection on the basis of his ongoing relationship with him. Here, he starts with that ongoing relationship and says that's why he's, so, he's, he's assured of stability and security. Alec Mottia unpacks the substance of the images in this verse. Yahweh in front is the one I follow, the standard to which I aspire. Yahweh alongside is the strength on which I draw for life's journey. Here, the root structure that supports David's confidence is exposed. He knows God based on God's revelation of himself in his word and his promises. And he is committed to God. He's following him wholeheartedly, walking in obedience to his commands and depending on him in every situation. Here's something we need to understand as people who are seeking to follow Jesus. There are at least two things that will undermine our confidence in God not truly knowing him, and not sincerely obeying him. We add the word light to product descriptions to indicate that they perhaps have lower carb or fat content and are therefore healthier for you. Light Christianity doesn't share that quality. We cannot know God apart from the means of grace by which he's made himself known. When we go light on gathering with others to sit under the preached word and sing soul-anchoring truths, when our Bible intake consists mainly of snack-packaged scriptures, when our prayer lives are narrow and shallow, when we are rarely served by the Spirit of Christ in those around us, God will be much more like an acquaintance than a precious friend, than our precious possession. We won't be confident about who He has become for us in Christ. We will be shaken when things start to shake. Alongside that... Knowing what pleases God but stubbornly refusing to walk in His ways is contrary to confident trust in God and His favor towards us. So any area of our lives where we have set up a rebel stronghold, where we refuse to obey God's gracious instructions, will serve to undermine our confidence in Him when we cry out in prayer. First John three twenty-one and 22 make this connection. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That's the kind of confidence David is expressing in this psalm. That confidence allows him to live happily and securely even with the threat of death. Look at verses 9 and 10 in your text. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One seek corruption. Now that is a massive claim. It could be metaphorical, meaning that God will spare him from death, healing him from illness or delivering him from his enemies, depending on the exact nature of the danger that David is facing at the time. He couldn't mean that God would actually raise him from the dead, could he? As David's song concludes, he affirms that the relationship with God that he has described is the path of life and contends that it leads all the way to God's very presence where there is full joy. This whole song is is just amazing. It makes these spectacular promises of security and satisfaction that extend beyond this life. The singer is this incredible, loyal lover of God, exemplary in every way. And that's where the problem is found, isn't it? How can David sing this song? It's one thing to proclaim the faithfulness of God as he does. It's entirely another to claim the perfect faith of this song for himself. I mean, we are used to leaders who speak the part well, for whom we have high hopes, but it turns out have big chat and can't defend that. When you remember what David was actually like, a liar, a failure as a father, an adulterer, a murderer, and we hear him sing this song, it can feel like the song is at best expressing an aspiration that he never actually lived up to, or worse, it's just outright hypocritical. And if the faithfulness of God that brings security and satisfaction in this song is conditioned on living as his faithful servant, As it seems to be at all of the joints of the song in in language like in verse 1 where it says for and because in verse 8 and therefore in verse 9, what hope is there for us who cannot possibly measure up to the standard set before us? We need Jesus. No, that's generally true, of course, but specifically true if the psalm is to usher us into the blessings it offers. Interpreting the psalms as Christian readers is challenging But it always helps when they're interpreted for us in the New Testament. So let's go there for a while as we begin to listen to Jesus' version. Quite to my surprise, my son Dominic has gotten into the Star Wars universe, created by George Lucas, with all its movies and shows. So he has watched every one of them, I'm sure. It's amusing to see him watching films that were made just after I was born, especially because, like most children, he's convinced that his father is so old and that everything from my time is like the Dark Ages. One of Star Wars' most impressive achievements is how it weaves a compelling story with the main events taking place over what's close to a hundred year span. It invites you to seek to understand the relationships and connections between different characters. Doing so deepens your appreciation of the story as a whole. What Lucas and the main architects of Star Wars have done is impressive. But hardly unprecedented. God has been writing a much more impressive true story in human history. You can't understand the Bible if you don't learn to read it as a story spanning thousands of years. With characters that are connected in surprising and revealing ways. One of the places where you start to see some of those connections is in the book of Acts. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up the account in verse 22. This is Peter's first sermon in the aftermath of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. As he preaches, he relies on Psalm 16 to help his Jewish audience to grasp the significance of the events that had taken place in Jerusalem in the preceding weeks. He focuses their attention on Jesus of Nazareth, pointing out the way God was at work around this guy. God did these amazing, miraculous works, signs and wonders through this man from this no-name town. In doing so, God was accrediting Jesus, marking him out as someone special. Peter would have been aware that most, if not all of this crowd, were aware of Jesus' reputation. But they were also aware of Jesus' shameful death by crucifixion a few weeks earlier. Some of them had been complicit in that death. The Jews had been waiting for God's great king, but despite initially promising signs, as far as they were concerned, Jesus' death ruled him out of the running. According to the law, a crucified man was cursed by God. Nobody who had died that way could be anybody special. But Peter told them that Jesus' death at the hands of sinful men was God's plan. God was at work in it, and his work didn't stop at that point. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. There are songs that you cannot fully understand without a backstory. Did you know that Dolly Parton wrote "I Will Always Love You" as a farewell to her mentor and duet partner Porter Wagoner? The best way that she could find to communicate her decision to pursue a solo career. It's fascinating how you hear the song differently when you know that. When Peter quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, he fills out the story necessary to understand the song. But it wasn't a backstory, but one that unfolded more than 1,000 years after the song was written. David wrote Psalm 16, but he could never fully own that song, and he was never meant to. Peter argues, starting in verse 29, that David could not have been writing about himself. The dissonance we hear when David sings Psalm 16 isn't only around his moral failings. It's also the obvious fact that he died and stayed dead. All the Jews knew that David died and was buried. His body had long decayed. They could visit his tomb, much like we can visit the the, the tombs of our national heroes. So what was David doing as he wrote? Peter explains, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of us, uh, 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 sorry, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from God the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Psalm 16 was David's personal song of confidence in God. Yet it was at the same time and more so a prophetic song about someone else. David wrote about the Christ, God's chosen king. God called his shot before he made it. Therefore, Jesus' resurrection from the dead confirmed that he was the Christ. Psalm 16 was always and is ultimately his song. So beyond who he was, what does this psalm reveal about him? Let's look back at the text. So jump back to Psalm 16 now and we want to listen to Jesus singing it. So what do we learn about him as we kind of comb our way again through Psalm 16? Well, we learn what he is like. We hear his heart. Jesus is the loyal lover of God, exemplary in every way. When he sings, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you, we see how God the Father was his home, the source, the sum, and the substance of the good in his life. Amazingly, he delights in God's people, even though he sees us for what we really are. He walked through his whole life satisfied and secure, knowing that God held his future. As he faced human enemies, Satan's machinations, and death itself, he cried out to God to preserve him. As I was writing and looking at Psalm 16 and just kind of hearing Jesus sing it, uh, my thoughts turned to John chapter 17, verse 5. This is Jesus praying as he prepares to face the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, what would you have thought if you were one of the disciples standing there listening to Jesus pray that? I mean, they didn't understand for sure that he was about to face the cross. But he knew that. And here he is in the the crisis moment of his life and this is how he prays? Listen to that confidence. It's the same assurance expressed in Psalm 16. I shall not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Though Jesus agonized over drinking the cup of the Father's wrath on the cross, he did so for the joy that was set before him, confident that ultimately God was his chosen portion and his cup. That God held his lot. He knew that his Father would raise him from the dead. The blessings of this psalm are conditioned on the faithfulness of the singer, and Jesus satisfies every criteria perfectly. When he sings this psalm, we hear his heart for God, his determination to follow God's ways, and his love for God's people. Because of this psalm, we know who Jesus is. He is the Christ, and we know what he is like. And because of this psalm, we know where Jesus is. Look again at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter explained what that meant. God made the path of life known to Jesus by raising him from the dead. He then exalted him at his right hand. Peter watched Jesus ascend into the clouds. He couldn't see where he went, but he had Psalm 16. And he and the whole crowd that he had preached to that day could see that the Holy Spirit had been poured out as the prophet Joel had prophesied and Jesus had promised. God calls his shots before he makes them. You make known to me the path of life. Who's into hiking? I know somebody over there. We were just talking about hiking this week. Okay, all right, let's do this again. Who has ever been on a hike before? All right, that's better. (laughs) Because that wasn't working out. If you've been hiking on a trail, you'd be familiar with reaching a point where you have to choose between two paths. I remember doing this, heading to Blue Mountain Peak, and, you know, we're kind of in a small group, isolated from the rest of the group, and we're like, oh boy, uh, both of these paths look good. And I really don't know, you know, and you, you know, if you've done it before, you're trying to remember, like, which one was it? You see... The reality is it can be confusing if you get to a point like that and there are no signs and there's nobody among the group who knows the way. Now, imagine yourself hiking through terrain that you are unfamiliar with, trying to find the best path to a good destination, but one you've never visited before. Imagine that you're starting at a point where dozens of paths branch out in different directions and each one of those has dozens of forks and junctions. How far do you think you'd have to walk on a path that you've never walked before to know if it's taking you in the right direction? A path might start out very pleasant and promising, but how could you know for sure where it is leading? How could you possibly know which path to choose? But isn't that exactly what our lives are like? We all want to find life and satisfaction and security. We all want to walk with confidence. And lots of people think they've figured it out. There are thousands of guides in this world offering advice and coaching. But we're counseled this way twice in the book of Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to a man, but his end is the way of death. No matter how long we've lived and whatever experiences we've collected, none of us have seen beyond where our feet are right now. None of us have seen beyond death, which all of us must meet sooner or later. But what if there was someone who has seen beyond death? Someone who has walked the best path to its very end. Psalm 16 tells us that Jesus knows the path of life because God made it known to him. The whole psalm lays out the path of life that he walked. Again, Derek Kidna explains well. The path of life is so called, not only because of its goal, but because to walk that way is to live in the true sense of the word already. It leads without break into God's presence and into eternity. The problem that we've seen already is that we cannot walk the path perfectly any more than David could. Therefore, salvation cannot come through trying to follow the right set of instructions. We can't live our lives in such a way that we can have the kind of confidence Jesus did in facing death. But the good news is that there is a way for us to walk the path. We can walk the path in Jesus, in Christ. That's how the New Testament describes believers over and over and over again. Getting saved then is not a transaction where we pray a prayer in exchange for a token that we keep in our back pocket while we go off and chase other gods so that one day when life is over, we'll be able to exchange it for admission to whatever God has in store based on the assumption that even if it's not so great, it must be better than the alternative. Psalm 16 describes what it means to be saved. This is one of the ways this psalm serves us. You want to know what it means to be saved and to live with Jesus? Read Psalm 16. It is to cry out to God for refuge as we make God our home. It's a change of allegiance. It is to sing, you are my Lord and to seek our good in him. It is to put Yahweh in front of us as the one we follow and to lean on him for strength that we'll need because the journey is going to be hard. It is to seek to do all of this authentically, knowing that we will do it imperfectly, but that's okay because our goal is not perfection, but imitation. Growing in resemblance to Jesus as God remakes us in his image. This psalm tells us what it looks like for us to walk behind Jesus and to sing along as we do so. When we invite you to believe the gospel, the good news, that is the life that we're inviting you to. We, believers, constantly need that invitation because we so easily slip into sub-Christian lives. We forget that we have no good apart from God. We wonder whether the one who made us and is reshaping our appetites so that they're like Jesus's can truly satisfy us forever. We flit from empty promise to empty promise instead of confidently following the path Jesus walked before us. If you're here with us this morning, and by the grace of God, you've realized that you're going through life trusting your own wits and wisdom. If you know that you're not seeking all your good in Jesus, won't you turn from sin and self-determination and follow Him? You can cry out to God right now, right where you are, asking Him for refuge. And we would be absolutely delighted and honored to help you to start on and stay on the path of life. That's a part of what it means to be a part of a local church. We walk together on the path of life and help each other as we go. So please don't hesitate to speak to any one of our pastors or any one of our members after the service. Psalm 16 describes the path of life, the life of the saints. A journey of trouble, yet satisfaction and security as we walk through this life and confidently through death into unending joy in God's presence. And how could it be otherwise? The commentator Alan P. Ross teases out this magnificent truth in this wonderful song. God does not redeem his people, guide them through life, provide for them and protect them along the way, only to let it all come to an end in the grave. No, he will raise them from corruption to incorruption to a glorious new estate in his presence forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. That must be the case because Jesus walked the path of life all the way to God's right hand. When he sang this song, he did so for all who would sing their imperfect versions in him. Christopher Ashe captures this so well. When Jesus prays for refuge, he does so for himself and for all his people. When he is confident of bodily resurrection, his confidence extends to all his people. Jesus has won for us the blessings of Psalm 16. In the mouth of Jesus, Psalm 16 is an unmatched solo, spectacular and unique. Yet this psalm is also an invitation. It calls us to experience salvation, not merely as a final outcome, but as a way of living each day, instructed by God's word and secured by the hope of the resurrection. It invites us to make it our song, to walk confidently on the path of of life in Christ and enjoy security and satisfaction now and forever. The confidence of David falls flat on the basis of his own record, but stands strong on the grace that came through his descendant, Jesus. Similarly, we can experience the security and satisfaction on offer here through faith in Christ, knowing that he won all the blessings for us, all of these blessings, including being raised from the dead like he was. If you will follow him, if you will live in him and lean on him, if you cry to him and hide in him, you will find that despite stumbling from time to time, you'll walk with increasing confidence. His spirit will assure you that you belong to him, that you are in him. The Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And death will be for you only a doorway on the unending path of life that leads to eternal joy in the presence of God. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.